There's plenty of things we can think of that we are doing much, much better as we sort of reinvent ourselves these days. But it's hard when you look back at the success we've had to really point at anything that you wouldn't have done because it's the journey is, all of it is part of it. Hi, I'm Jubin, operating partner at Kleiner Perkins, and I'm excited that you're tuning into Grit. The goal of this is not for it to be a highlight reel of how successful my guests are, rather a candid exploration of how hard it is, both personally and professionally, to create, build, and scale world-class organizations. If you're a fan of the show, please subscribe, leave a review, and make sure to follow us on LinkedIn or Twitter. Thanks. I wanted to start out with a picture. I love this picture. You guys are holding, is this old English 40s? Yeah, yeah, 40s, yeah, in our younger days. In a parking lot. It looks like right in front of the liquor store. That's where we started the company. In this shopping center or what? Yeah, shopping center in Menlo Park. And what like- On El Camino. uh, this day that you took this picture. That's actually a recreation to some degree. I the think first we took one? that the first one we took it in maybe like 2007, so the company had been around for a few years already, but it indicated it was like that's where it all began and that was the mentality. <laughs> I'm not drinking 40s, but just togetherness being there all the time and working incredible hours and there is a anecdote that we did bring beer in for one of our upgrades. And that was the last time we ever did that because the upgrade took longer than it should have. It ended up being, for those that don't know, like a giant acquisition, 9.3 billion by Oracle. It's 25 years later. How long did it take from basically call it that day, the metaphorical first day to the acquisition? Yeah, the acquisition was 2016. So 18 years. 18 years. And then another nine years past that. And you're still, right? Is that right? Seven. Seven. Okay. <laughs> 2016? Yeah. Oh yeah, we're in 23. That's right. Seven right. years. Yep. Yes. You're still at the helm of NetSuite. That's true. How long have you been married for? Uh, the same number of years. I got, that was a big year for me, 1998. Got married, moved down to the peninsula from the city, had my first child, started NetSuite. Most people aren't even married this long. Like <laughs> you're, you're still married to the same company. Is that just weird to reflect on? Like when you think back, to like when you did that post and you look back is that just a surreal feeling? When you say the number, it sounds like a really long time. But when I reflect on it, it doesn't seem that long. It, it was uh, obviously it's a journey that's been full of excitement. And that's often what you feel about exciting journeys and vacations is that they seem really long when they're happening. But then when you look back on them, it's like, boy, that went fast. When you were in the midst of it, did you feel like you overestimated what you could do? in let's say a month or a quarter and underestimated what you could do in say a year yeah, or a decade? Yeah, I think that's, that was a Bill Gates quote and I think it's very spot on and that's the bane of software schedules is you know if you add up all the time that you think it's going to take, you get a very small number that you never hit. But then when you look back on how much you got done, it does seem incredible that you were able to get so much done in such a short amount of time. Yeah, it's amazing, isn't it? Yeah. So I was just with, do you know Parker Conrad? Do you have heard of Rippling? I asked him if your daughter wanted to start a company, what would you say? A tech startup in 20 years. She's like three years old. And he'd say I would strongly dissuade her from doing that. What's your feeling on that? Knowing what you know, 20. Yeah, well, I've done two and I'm batting 500. So that's in Major League Baseball. That's excellent. But I don't know in startup world, how good that is. You see so many, you know, all you read about are the people that were instant successes. You don't read a lot about all the failures and in between. So both experiences though were really valuable to me and I would recommend them. I don't recommend failure, but on the other hand, there's a lot of learning that comes there and it also makes it very clear to you what the stakes are mm-hmm. when there are real people involved that you're employing. And so that maybe is, I don't know what his cynicism comes from, but that certainly can lead you to be cynical or jaded about startups. They fail at an enormously high rate. What kind of tolerance for that sort of risk do you have? And are you going to be able to shake it off even though it's really challenging when things don't work out? Are you going to be able to shake shake it off and, and try it again? Do you feel like as you reflect back on the time, you have a bit of rose-colored lenses on 
a lot of people do only talk about even the successful people, kind of the good things that happened along the way. And I'm not even sure I actually blame them for that. I actually think it's a human instinct to cover up and protect the hurt that happens along the way. Do you feel that way as you think back? I think I have a pretty clear-eyed view of all the ups and downs that we've had and the, the missteps that we've taken. We're in the process of trying to reinvent NetSuite. And a lot of that is using what you learned. And a lot of what you learned comes from the mistakes. So if you forget about all, the, all of those, you, as the saying goes, you're doomed to repeat them. So I think we've been pretty careful. And I have a group of leaders that work with me that are not shy about reminding me of the things that we have, the mistakes and the missteps that we've had in the past. Certainly from a personnel perspective, I know the times that we did not go in the right direction and I had to correct it and that's painful. It's a painful part of running a company and I don't forget those because again, there's real people involved and the better fit you can find for different opportunities, the less likely you have to affect someone's life in that way and I had to make a decision to move on from an early CEO of NetSuite and bring on a new one, despite the fact that I knew that every time you do that, there's risk, especially for a founder, bringing someone on to some degree helm your baby. You know, again, it was one of those situations where I really tried to use the first experience as a learning experience. And it did turn out that second time was the charm. Why did you bring on a CEO? You were the CEO. I was CEO, then I was the CTO, then I was the CEO, then I was the CTO. And now you might say I'm sort of the internal CEO at Oracle. I mean, performing a lot of the roles, but certainly not all of them that a CEO performed when we were independent. Take away the allure. Take away anything but the job description of the CEO and CTO. Do you have a preference? Well, I was chairman and CTO, which is sort of the best of both worlds. In fact, that's what Larry Ellison is now of Oracle, because you still have the influence and oversight over the, to a certain degree over the strategic direction of the company. And yet you can work on a day-to-day basis on the things you really love, which is improving the technology. What I love, I should say, some people don't love that, but I love improving the technology and being deeply involved in the product direction. That was actually pretty, I think it was for many years. I mean, that was what the situation was for something like 13 years at NetSuite. And uh, that worked out really well. Yeah. Did you step away as the CEO the first and second time? Like how'd how'd that go down? I stepped away. Why? Uh, Well, I mean, because- Honest why? I think that you got to know your strengths and capitalize on your strengths. And, you know, I think that great leaders- also know where they're not as strong and supplement in those areas. And I think I just didn't have a ton of interest at the time in how NetSuite was going to be distributed in the sort of go-to-market approach and driving go-to-market. And I felt that my strengths really lied in the product. And the closer that I could keep my eye on that while making sure that someone I trust was sort of the Mr. or Mrs., in this case it was Mr. Outside, leaving me to be a little bit more of the Mr. Inside. I felt always that that would be the best kind of partnership. A lot of companies are led by a sole individual, but often you'll find that there's behind the scenes, there's a partnership. And I've always, that's what I've always wanted is a collaborative partnership with another leader to kind of take what I do from a technology perspective and bring it to the world. And that's what Zach Nelson and I, that was the partnership we were able to forge. Yeah. Do you think we've over-rotated in Silicon Valley to pushing as hard as we can on the technical founder, CEO, to ride that train all the way. Venture capital funds have been created around this notion. I think it's situationally dependent. There obviously are people that can rise to that occasion, it's hard to do a test. You can't rerun the company with a different CEO and different leadership. I do believe that both models can work. For many, many years, Oracle was led entirely by Larry Ellison. Now he has Safra Katz, who's the CEO, and he obviously has still has that chairman role, and that's a partnership. I think both can work, and I do believe that there probably is not 
enough weight given to the opportunities you have when you have a couple different people that can work incredibly well together, which is not easy. I mean, you really have to know what lane you're swimming in. Yeah. When you were growing up, what was conversation like at the dinner table for you? Was it technology oriented, achievement oriented? Was there a dinner table? What was that like? Yeah, no, we had a very traditional nuclear family, you know, and my dad was really a striver. He grew up in the depression, served in World War II, went to college on the GI Bill and really worked his whole life to build a home and a stable environment and a great educational environment for his family and his kids. And that was what was really, really important to both he and my mom was how we were doing in school and that we were achieving and that we were, you know, utilizing all of the advantages we had from the school system that he was able to get us to through a lot of hard work. So certainly that was a lot of the subject of the dinner table, but my parents also knew that you had to have fun and made sure that we had that, those opportunities also. And where was that? Lexington, Mass. Actually, we started in Arlington and then moved to Lexington, which was a, you know, a move up market, so to speak. No, no offense to Arlington. <laughs> and then when did you come west? Yeah, right after college. Went to Harvard. Yeah, I went to Harvard. I was, always wanted to do a software startup or, or have my own software company, but I, I knew that I had to get the experience and work in an existing company. And I was attracted to Oracle, not because I knew that much about them. And there were a couple things at play. First of all, I knew I wanted to move to California. It was pretty clear to me that the sort of center of gravity for software, especially was moving to California. Boston had a great high tech ecosystem back in the day when I was really young, but with the advent of Apple and then of course companies like Oracle. This was like mid eighties. Yeah. Mid eighties. And my sister worked for Fidelity and she said, if you want to go West, you should go work for this company, Oracle and this guy, Larry Ellison. I mean, he's going to revolutionize Silicon Valley and his industry. And I didn't really know anything about it, but I sort of went with my sister's advice got connected with Oracle, who fortunately had decided that they did like hiring from Harvard because previously they had not done that. But my year, very typical Larry fashion, he decided to hire like half of the computer science graduating class at Harvard. So I had a lot of friends that came out here. I was applied math. I was sort of the black sheep. And how long did you spend at Oracle? Eight years. Did you like it? Yeah, I loved it. It was How big was the company? It was probably about 900 when I started and a few thousand when I left. I mean, it was growing incredibly rapidly. Very exciting place to work. Uh, had a great culture, can-do culture. There were lots of people right out of college. So it had, you know, moving to California, these are like the only people I knew pretty much. So it definitely had that, uh, the work-life balance was definitely, your fun and your work were kind of tied all together. But it was, it was a great time to be there. They were doing really exciting things. I mean, I started in the core database group that develops sort of the core software that runs the Oracle database. And that was a very prestigious place to go. Larry kind of shoved me in there because he said I'd won math contests. So even though I didn't know C, he told the leader, well, he'll just get a book. But I actually found out about a year in that Oracle was going to start developing software on the Macintosh and that that effort was championed by a young Oracle salesperson named Mark Benioff. And I had always loved the Mac. I'd loved the Apple before that. And I felt working on the deep innards of the Oracle database that I wasn't close enough to the actual users. And I always went from the very day I started using computers, helping people in their daily lives in some way, shape or fashion was what I was most interested in. So the opportunity to work on the Mac, to be closer to users, to develop great user experiences for using Oracle, which was an extremely technical product, was really attractive. I was still kind of torn because I was in this prestigious group, but Larry walked by one day and said, I hear you're thinking of going into the Mac group. And I said, yeah. And he says, well, that's, you know, if I were graduating or just graduated college like you, that's exactly what I'd do. So when the CEO tells you that, you sort of feel anointed with holy water. And so that's what I did. And sorry, rewind. Benioff was the head of getting the Oracle database to work on Mac. That's exactly right. And you went to go work for him. Yeah, I worked on the Oracle development team, but ultimately, I mean, he was the leader of that group. I ended up running the development team. And were you and Larry, he knew who you were, he interviewed you, but- 
mean, we would encounter each other once in a while. Mark and Larry were extremely close. And so just by being friends with Mark, you automatically got tugged into the Larry orbit. Yeah, that makes sense. Do you think one of Larry's great superpowers, when it's all said and done, will be recognizing amazing talent? Absolutely. Like every great leader knows that you can't do everything yourself. And he thrives on engagement. He thrives on that reasoned debate about what the right thing to do is. And that makes everybody do better work. So I think it's a, he's developed a very attractive environment for high performing people. And, you know, that's shown, I think, in, in the kind of the alumni network yeah. uh, that's resulted. And I think it's hard for people of a younger generation to understand what Oracle was like back then. It would be like joining OpenAI or something today. Do you think that's fair? I mean, it was revolutionary. It was certainly not as relatable to the average user as something like, right, like it uh, the average human being as the average human being as ChatGPT. But in the database industry, it was absolutely revolutionary. I mean, it really was a new era in databases and thereby enabled, you know, a next generation of software applications. Yeah. Do you consider yourself an introvert? That's a good question. I'm quite social. You could ask my wife when we have an opportunity to go do something with friends or I usually sign up for it. So I don't know if that's the, but I also do thrive on doing work by myself. So it's a combination. Let me ask you this. Do you get more energy from being in front of the company at an all hands or from sitting alone behind your laptop writing code? Neither. I mean, both of those are exciting and fun, actually, in their own right. But I get the most energy out of meetings with people that I really respect, engaged in reason, debate, and dialogue about how to move an initiative forward. The reason that I ask you this is because it strikes me that you were a BA in applied math from Harvard. You went to Oracle. Larry's saying that you're just going to pick up a book and figure things out. Like these are all the kind of telltale signs of a, an introvert. Maybe at least someone that is very technical and deep in the technical things. That's yes. not to say that those people can't be extroverted. No, that's right. I mean, I think there's multiple sides to my personality. I love programming and programming is to a large degree a solitary pursuit for yeah. sure. Yeah. But I love going out and playing golf, which is not a solid. I mean, it is a solitary pursuit for your score, but it's mostly a social activity, especially if you're as mediocre as I am. Fair enough. How long did you spend in the Mac group? I spent a couple of years there and then ultimately worked on a lot of technologies that grew out of the Mac group that were more general to use on other platforms. But primarily it was the same thing, trying to make Oracle's complex and sophisticated technology more accessible to sort of the average human being, the average user. And you're becoming more senior. You had a lot of gravitas within the organization at this point. Larry knew who you were. Mark knows who you are, obviously. You're making good money. You're at the mecca of technology at this point. Were you getting this feeling of, I need to go do my own thing? I always wanted to do my own thing. I always wanted to have my own software company. But did you start so to think maybe, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe this is home. You know, it turns it, out it was home. It, in one it, way well, in some sense, I really, really, of course, valued my relationship with Larry. And when I left, I didn't know whether that would continue or not. The main thing that happened is the internet. And the minute I started working on internet technologies at Oracle in 94, 95, it was clear to me that this was an amazing opportunity, that there were going to be incredible companies created out of this. It seemed like the natural time to start, knowing that there were going to be a million other companies that started at that time, which is definitely what happened. Yeah. It kind of feels like now, doesn't it? It definitely feels like now. Can you maybe double click on that? Like, what is that feeling? It's the feeling of endless possibilities. You know, the quote back then was the internet changes everything. We could just substitute AI. Yeah. Do you get the sense now that it's the same fervor as it was back then? It might be even higher. I mean, at least inside of existing companies, I think there were a lot of companies that were somewhat slow to embrace the internet. There was skepticism there. There doesn't seem to be a lot of skepticism out there about AI right now from any company. It's more like just embrace it and the hype machine is on overdrive right now. 
That's what I was going to ask. Like, does it give you pause that there seems to be no skepticism about AI? Because well, at least there was, you know, the famous Bill Gates going on Letterman, talking about the internet. Letterman says, what can you do with this internet thing? What about this internet thing? Do you, do you know anything about that? Sure. <laughs> what, what the hell is that exactly? Well, it's, it's become a place where people are publishing information. Right. So you, everybody can have their own homepage. Companies are there, the latest information. It's wild what's going on. You can send electronic mail to people. Uh, it is the big new thing. Yeah, but you know, uh, uh, it's easy to criticize something you don't fully understand, which is my position here. Go ahead. But I, I can remember a couple of months ago, there was like a big breakthrough announcement <laughs> that on the internet or on some computer deal, they were going to broadcast a, a baseball game. You could listen to a baseball game on your computer. And I just thought to myself, does radio ring a bell? <laughs> To your point, even with ChatGPT relative to Oracle back in the day, everyone kind of knows what this thing is. Yeah, I wonder, does it give you pause? Well, what gives me pause is that ChatGPT has a fantastic user interface. And as a result, it can be very convincing in its ability to do anything. I think in the realm that we work in, you know, enterprise, business software, there's a lot more that AI can do that probably isn't going to be solved by large language models, even though large language models will be part of the experience. I think there's a lot more to be invented at a very deep level beyond LLMs, but I, you know, you see a, so much of the excitement and the companies are being generated off of basically building off of LLMs. So I hope, and certainly we intend to, but I hope that there's beyond that, which has this very, very shiny new object aspect to it, there's some other deep AI uh, advances that are going to be made that are going to help with the types of questions that our users want to ask, which is uh, how can I be more successful at my business? How can I do more while spending less? Those kinds of questions. They're not just going to be generative or language-based questions. There was a Paul Graham tweet that I read the other day that said, um, the crazy thing about how quickly things are moving in AI right now is that this is humans pushing AI. The AI hasn't even started really evolving itself yet. Pretty crazy. I mean, it feels like it is evolving itself when you talk to ChatGPT. It's like, wow, it seems to really be learning. You know, I haven't dived deep enough under the covers to know what's really going on, but it certainly is the case that it'll make tons of sense for companies to be able to build self-improving systems. But then, you know, that is what raises these existential questions that people are worried about. Have you not dove under the hood for Evan's standards or have you not really dove under I, the hood? You know, I took uh, Andrew Ng's machine learning course at Coursera. So I have, you know, some very basic understanding of how neural nets work and sort of the math and the statistics behind them. The stuff that they're doing at OpenAI is, you talk about deep learning, it's so deep. Again, I'm... Really excited about that. I think it has tremendous opportunities for the users that we serve. But I'm equally, if not more, excited about the other things we can do with the data, which is mostly in the form of numbers that we have to help answer those questions that entrepreneurs have. So in that regard, I think that's where I am more inclined to go very deeply under the hood, especially since a lot of that I don't think has been invented yet. Well, and to your point on the incumbent advantage. Incumbents seem to be late to the internet thing. It seems to be the inverse this time around. Again, we're like, this conversation could look stupid in six to nine months, but like there seems to be a meaningful data moat that incumbents have that they're going to be able to use in a really interesting way. And they see this opportunity. You're in the perfect position. I mean, we have great data of over 35,000 customers and how they're running their business and how they're using our technology. And, you know, we're going to be really careful with how we use that. I was watching the demo of Facebook's VR glasses. Lex Friedman went on a podcast with Mark Zuckerberg and he went to Pittsburgh first, did a full scan of his face and everything. And then he was like on the verge of tears when he was having this conversation with Mark because, you know, he was like, if I did this with my family and loved ones, like I feel actually like you're in the room with me. You know, it felt like we crossed the uncanny valley. It blew me away. Have you done the ride Rise of 
the resistance at Disneyland. No. Yeah, that in many cases crosses the uncanny what valley. Do you mean? I mean, they well, they're masters of illusion there, and there are some scenes of people that you swear that the person is actually standing there. But it seems to be the actor from the sequels, so I don't think he was. But, you know, if you can do the illusion well enough, yeah, it's incredible and has lots of great possibilities and lots of dystopic possibilities, as we know from, like, various Black Mirror episodes. Does seeing this wave happening right now re-fire up? Maybe it was never quelled, but does it get the technologist in you going again, almost in a internet Evan way that compelled him to go start the company? Yeah, that's a great question. And I, you know, my other connection to AI was that in 1990, I left Oracle briefly to go get a PhD at the AI lab. But after like three months, I was like, oh boy, this stuff is not ready for prime time. So that's like the road not traveled. I mean, my dad definitely wanted me to get that PhD. I would have spent years doing that and I probably would have spent years working in obscurity and now would be my heyday at 57, I'd be like coming into my own. But, you know, I always was really excited about the possibilities of AI. So yeah, it's something that I'm a different person than I was back then and probably want to take advantage of this opportunity in a different way than I may have, than I may have back then. Meaning, Plus, you know, I mean, I have a 57 year old brain. (laughs) It's like some things need to be left to the 25 year olds. You think you're jaded? (laughs) Maybe. Or (laughs) I just have a lot of other things besides sitting there and programming that I think I probably add decent value to. Yeah. But you know what? I was listening to Larry give a talk maybe two weeks ago. It was like a few minutes, but it was about Snowflake I'm sure you've seen it. He was so, he's older than you. (laughs) (laughs) And he was so fired up. And it gave me inspiration. I could feel him have this energy that I'm like, man, could he have been more energetic 30 years ago? It doesn't feel like it. For me, it's not an energy question. It's more of a sort of a focus question, what I would spend my time on. And I see how Larry spends his time and he spends his time sometimes in the depths of things, designing things and a lot of the time conceptualizing. When it comes to AI in business software, it's something I've been thinking about. I mean, if you ask the people at NetSuite, I've been screaming about intelligent assistance for at least 15 years, probably longer. And now what's really exciting is that it seems that we have the computational power and the sort of advanced algorithms to be able to actually do something about it. And that, as opposed to the Evan that wanted to go off and do something completely brand new, I'm still very tied to NetSuite. It's sort of, you know, my baby, our baby of all the people that have been working on it for so long. And I think it's performing a really important function, helping fast-growing entrepreneurial organizations succeed faster, cheaper, better, So when I now look at AI, like I look at a lot of things, I kind of just look at it through the lens of how are we going to utilize it to do the kinds of things I've wanted to do for years, which is give great advice and assistance to entrepreneurs. Totally. You left the Mac team at Oracle and you started at the time it was Embed. Embed, yep. 95. Right. And juxtapose this with you were just getting married? No, I got married right uh, before we started NetSuite. So right, okay, my okay. wife likes to say she got me on the way down. Basically, we got married as I was pretty much dissolving NetSuite. Like when I got back from my honeymoon, it was like- Dissolving Embed. Dissolving Embed. I mean, when I got back from my honeymoon, it was basically like telling people like, I don't think we're going to continue as a going concern. And then starting to think about what's next. I got married in June, July, August. We're all about- deciding what might be next and then kind of going to Larry and saying, we want to do something new because this one isn't working out. And was Larry involved in Embed? I mean, he invested, which was great. I mean, it wasn't something that he- So he he wasn't pissed when you left? No. I I mean, obviously not. Like he he supported you. He he, he said, you've quit before, the the MIT thing. He said, you've quit before and hopefully you'll quit again. (laughs) He was quite prescient. Though now he says I'm going to spend the rest of my career there. So we'll see how that And how do you that roll up to Larry out. now? I work for Saffron. Okay, okay. Yeah. You start Embed, Larry supports you. How much money did you raise? 
Well, I put about three million of my own money into it, and that was all I had from Oracle. Yeah, basically. it was all my Oracle stock, everything I had. And three million back then is yeah, it was a, adjusted yeah. now a lot yeah. of money. And Larry put in about an equal amount. We had about equal shares in the company, maybe a little more from the sweat equity. He wasn't super interested in it. I think he was investing in me. He'd call it the graphic stuff. Because what we did was, for those that remember Flash, how people made websites more interactive back in the 90s and early 2000s, we were building something very much like that. But Flash sort of won. You know, I was trying to use the skills I'd learned about great user experiences that I'd been pursuing at Oracle somewhat upstream, swimming somewhat upstream to do that to internet websites, make them really interactive, make them be able to be generated from databases and from powerful sort of backend systems. But he wasn't super into it. As I said, he called it my graphics stuff. And so the pivotal phone call in NetSuite's history was that month in 1998 in September when I called him or he called me, somebody, one of us called each other, probably he called me and said, how's my graphics stuff going? And I said, not good. I want to do something different. And did you raise other money out like any like proper venture? Nope, not for a man bet. Okay. We just weren't at that. We had customers, we were making sales, but nothing, not enough to support our organization. So we were continually like lowering people's salaries. And then we had to let some people go. This is the environment in which Cindy found me, as she said, on the way down. And it, <laughs> Just so I understand, like, it's pretty badass for you to put your own money. And I know that sounds like not a very novel thing, but it's pretty relative. Like, why didn't you just go well, raise I, all the... Yeah, there wasn't as sophisticated a pipeline. There totally. wasn't Y Combinator, that kind of thing. And, you know, I had Larry's support and I wanted to keep a good fraction of the company. But I, yeah, I wiped out my bank account. So NetSuite was a little bit different. Yeah. And so it was a three year, three, three years, years right? Mm-hmm. How long from enthusiasm to... Not, not that long. I mean, <laughs> you know, hope springs eternal. And so up until the very end, we had many, many schemes to get ourselves moving in the right direction. We had great, loyal customers. We built a really cool system. I'm still super, super proud of it. I always have dreams of reviving it someday because I still think there isn't quite that same kind of easy to use way to make websites super interactive. But yeah, so it was just in the last few months that we were like, yeah, this isn't going to work and started to think about what the next thing would be. You left with your stock sky high, literally and figuratively from Oracle. And then you go and you start struggling at this startup. Were you living in San Francisco? What was it? I was living in San Francisco. I mean, I didn't spend all my money on this startup. I did buy a condo. Yeah. (laughs) So... Um, yeah, I was living in San Francisco, but I was, you know, I think I downsized from a Porsche to a Jeep and uh, yeah, I took a big salary cut along with everybody else. And that was just something that we felt we needed to do to invest in the company and try to revive it. One of the important things for every entrepreneur is to know when to cut and run and try something new. So that decision, you know, it was a pretty momentous decision for me when you look back, because if I'd stayed with that for a few more years, NetSuite wouldn't have happened. At least I wouldn't have started it and somebody else probably would have. And was there something that broke the camel's back for you to make the decision to do it? Well, you know what? I think part of it was that in my mind, you know, and when you're selling web authoring software, you're selling to people that don't, necessarily want to spend a lot of money. I used to joke, it's like, maybe starving web artists is not (laughs) the best target market. Just thinking. I really started to get excited about the notion of building business software because this was my first company and I saw the crap that we had to use to track everything in the company and run the company and try to figure out what was going on and what might happen in the future. I think that was just percolating in the back of my mind And the more we struggled, the more I saw that was kind of self-reinforcing. It's like, well, part of the reason we're struggling is we don't have great tools. And there's probably a lot of companies out there that don't have great tools. I imagine that big companies had great tools to track everything in their business and, and get analytics and on the fly whenever they needed it. Not really true, but I certainly knew that small companies didn't have that. And so I think the combination of that idea starting to germinate is what maybe accelerated me to kind of switch tax. And, and, you know, I brought over my key founders from Embed to NetSuite. So that was a great aspect of it also. But you know what's crazy? When Larry called you 
You didn't say I want to go back to Oracle, given the headbanging that you just did against the wall for almost three years. Yeah. No, no, no. I, I loved having my own company. I was like, no, we're doing this again. You still wanted to do it again. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I did not want to. Why? You have like a almost sinister smirk on your face, no, knowing I mean, that there's no way that you were ever going back. It's the most exciting. It's the most satisfying. Sorry, but it just is. It's the highest risk. Um, but at that stage of my life, even though I did just get married and we were going to have a kid, I still had this real appetite for risk. And fortunately, my my wife agreed. Yeah, so there was no doubt in my mind that I was going to try it at least one more time, if not more. And when you decided that it was time to do the next thing, I'm also a little surprised that you know, a lot of the time what we see, especially in Kleiner Perkins, is there's a lot of co-founder fights. And by the way, the co-founder fights happen at the very successful companies too, let alone the ones that don't work. You were able to keep the band together. I assume it's the fellas in this picture? That's right. All of them? Two of the three okay. were, were at Embed. Any attribution to that? Well, I'd worked with both of them for many years, yeah. and I think to some degree, at least we recently got together for a sort of reunion panel, you know, so the rest of the NetSuite at Oracle could kind of hear some of the stories from the early days. And apparently they trusted me. That's yeah. what they say anyway. Yeah. <laughs> and in hindsight, your wife had just married you. You were about to have a kid? Right. You didn't have what you had when you were leaving Oracle. I guess you were dead set on doing this thing. And she must have acknowledged and seen your yeah, she, tunnel vision. Right. I and mean, she married I, that. She liked the passion for sure. And that was something that she's always said. And she's been the most amazing supporter and cheerleader one could ever ask for. Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't have done it if it was going to have any negative effects to my family. As far as I could tell, it wasn't. She didn't seem to think that it was. And I don't think it did. In, obviously, it didn't in the long term, but there were several years where we were basically living paycheck to paycheck. Cindy got invited to go on um, Larry's yacht. She was very close with uh, the woman Larry was with at the time. And I bought her a ticket that was like on Aer Lingus and had like three stops to get to Nice and they lost her luggage. <laughs> and like, So we were living in proximity to fame and fortune, but we were definitely nowhere near it ourselves. But it was a great time, you know, and we were scrapping together our life with our family at the exact same time that we were building the company. So I'd go straight from programming to changing diapers. I've watched pretty much everything that you've put out and you've talked about Sydney in the past. We actually got to talk to Sydney before this, which was great. Knowing how much Larry means to you, you still attribute and credit your wife with your success more than him or anybody no, else. I, yeah, I mean, okay, they're different. The influences that are different. Can you and talk I about will that? Not, I mean, in no way can I discount the influence that Larry had. First of all, the cloud was his idea. I wanted to do business software and probably start with sales, <laughs> which my friend Mark did a few months later. He wanted to start with accounting and that's what we did. So, you know, he gets like 70% credit or something like that for that, you know, the idea that in that original phone call, there's no way I can minimize the incredible impact, the support that he gave us through two downturns, especially that first one, the mm. dot-com bust. He did not lose the slightest shred of confidence that NetSuite was going to be a massive company someday. And he showed it by continuing to support us through that. That's a different kind of support. Of course. Yeah. And then, you know, having a partner in life who understands what you have to do to build a company, which is that, you know, you're on 24 seven, you're thinking about it. You might be working, but even when you're not working, the ideas are coming and you want a, a sounding board for them. And she was an amazing sounding board and definitely NetSuite would not have happened without the incredible support she gave. Can I tell you why I'm pressing on this? We are, I don't know, almost 160 episodes in. And there's only two things that I have been able to find as consistencies and real patterns amongst my guests. One is the least surprising, which is grit. <laughs> the other is the most surprising, which is a very strong and supportive partner. I have been blown away by how many of my guests, because the impression that I had growing up, the impression that I had of all of these successful people that I 
have known or whatever couldn't have been further from the truth, which is that almost without exception, with a few, but almost without, all of these people that have joined me on the show have incredible partners and support systems at home. It's unbelievable. Yeah, I mean, you need it. And if you're a human being and you have children, you know that, of course, it takes a partnership to raise those children. And as I said, I you know, I would go from programming to playing with the kids back to programming, et cetera. But that stability, I think, is absolutely essential when you're doing something that's sort of as high risk, as high stakes, as intense, as all-consuming as a fast-growing startup. So you call the fellows from Embed. You say, hey, I think Larry wants to somehow do this with us again. Well, we were actually working in the office, if you can believe that. And that phone call happened in the office. So I was in the conference room talking to Larry and I came out and I said, I think we're going to do business software. <laughs> That's how it happened. What'd they say? They were like, okay. <laughs> and so- I mean, they thought about it for a little bit, but uh, one thing I said is that, and we'll probably move down from San Francisco to the peninsula. Well, my key development engineer co-founder lived in Sunnyvale. And he's like, I fully support this. (laughs) (laughs) And then was it a new company? Do you think of that as a new formation? Or was it more of a pivot to the- No, it wasn't. It was so different than what we were doing. And it was really just going to be the core group of founders and we were going to build up again from scratch. Yeah, we did the, the whole thing. And the other thing was, you know, Larry was like, we did your idea. Now we're doing my idea, or at least our idea. So I think his idea was, yeah, we need to re- restart this whole thing, which, you know, from a financial perspective, it, it would have probably been better for me if we had just stuck with the existing company. But the fresh start also gave us the ability to really extract ourselves from everything that we were doing otherwise and give 1,000% focus to this new idea. Totally. And so you moved down the peninsula you open a new office. It's just you and the 40s men. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. You get to work on NetSuite. Larry invested some sum of money. Yeah, no, he, he provided almost all the money. I mean, I only could invest like $2,000. You're kidding. That's all I had. So he was basically- I'm the- like, I can give you $2,143.16. How's that? How much stock does that get me? <laughs> feel free to answer this or not, but like, did that change the working relationship from the previous company when- Not one iota. Okay. Uh, Not one iota, except that he was far more interested in this than he was in the other one. That's what changed it. That's right. Not only financially, but also because he felt like this was actually the right idea. Yeah. No, I mean, yeah, it was not a financial thing at all. This was something that he was really passionate about. I mean, he- dreamed up the cloud in reg- in the business realm anyway. I mean, he was really excited about this notion of running applications on the internet. He said, you know, first we had mainframes, then we had client server. Now we have this internet application thing and that's how applications are going to be run for the next thousand years. I don't know what's going to happen after that, but definitely for the next thousand. And this was his opportunity to start a company you know, of course he was doing stuff inside of Oracle, but this was an opportunity to start a company that would be 100% focused on it and have that sort of built into their DNA from ground zero. Yeah. And NetSuite started working pretty fast, right? Um, we got it up and running in about a year. Okay. Up and running meaning cost, paying small customers. Biz, yeah. Small, yeah. It, it was $4.99 a month. I, I used, I often joked that the evolution of NetSuite was not in the vision. That stayed very true to that first phone call. Just our business model went from like 100,000 customers or a million customers paying us $5 a month to not five customers paying us a million dollars a month, but somewhere on that continuum. But yeah. the idea remained remained the same. In 2007, the company went public. So that's nine years. Nine years. I guess technically 12 years since Embed, right? It went public at 45 bucks a pop. That was the uh, price on the second day. The second day. Yeah, it had a pop. It went from 26 to 45 in two days. You guys must have been going nuts. Well, it was funny because I was worried about that $26 price. Of course, you want it to go up on that first day. And I talked to Larry and he said, oh, that thing's going up. That's not your problem. Your problem is on the second day, it's going to go to like 45. That's when your problems are going to begin. Why? Well, because it was- too high. You'd argue that it was too high. 
Also, just from the timing perspective, it was basically the, big. the, the beginning. Yeah, we, we, we were one of the last companies to go public. And how long did it take to ultimately then get down to, I think the low was $5.43. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's a number that you remember. I was going to say, do you play with a tattoo of that somewhere? <laughs> exactly. Uh, how long did it take? That from- was about a year, a year or two, some 18 months, something like that. Yeah, it was, that, was, that was probably in late 2008, early 2009. And do you know the valuation-ish of the company at that point? It was, you know, down to a few hundred million. Wow. And what was it like inside the walls during that time? Well, one of the things was everyone saw what was happening with the economy. So to some degree, it was not happening in isolation. Yeah. We had enormous confidence in what we were doing at that stage of the game. We were so far ahead of everybody that I think the sense in the company was this is just inevitable. You know, inevitably we're going to get back to where we were. But it was still a very exciting day when we got back to $26. Yeah, and all my friends and family that had held onto their stock for those many years, now at least were you know back at par. Who bought at the IPO? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Not under my recommendation, of course. But does that um, weigh on you? It's one thing that you know you lost your money on Embed. I don't know if on the next go, if anybody else got the chance to invest in any of the rounds, but maybe it was even IPO and after. I feel like that's an unexplored area. Well, uh, you know, the biggest thing, I mean, most of the people are, their friends and family are investing. They're not basing their retirement on NetSuite. Sure. But the employees kind of are. And so that's where you feel probably the biggest burden is that, you know, these are younger employees that came in with high hopes of it's their job. It's end of one. Yeah. And so you definitely get concerned about that. And so we did things like we repriced our options so that, you know, because they were so far underwater and, you know, the way that usually works is that you get a smaller number of options at that lower option price. And that's a trade that you can make optionally. I'm pretty sure everybody at the company, except for me, made that exchange because I did the calculation and I don't know what the stock was at the time, 10 or something. And I did the calculation that at $38, it would be beneficial to not do the trade and keep the old options. And I was absolutely positive it was going to $38. Well, I had Larry behind me going, of course, it's going to be a hundred. <laughs> and that was a, a wise risk to take as it turned out. Well, thank goodness for your applied math, uh, <laughs> applied math degree. And my innate sense of optimism. That's right. And then took about three years and it got back to its IPO price. And then what? Well, you got to realize that I'm very focused on the product of at course. this stage of the game. I have a great CEO in Zach Nelson. We Sorry, have- can I interrupt you? Yeah. This is CEO number one, two. number two. Yeah. You've already been been through the cross the chasm. You've of already the CEO been that through the work CEO that didn't work out. Uh, you CEO that didn't work out. Then you, and then where is the company when you come back? What part of the what year ish? Well, no, what, I mean Zach Nelson, who I hired in two thousand two, I believe, was CEO all the way through the sale to Oracle. Okay, and it was an amazing partnership, and we had another guy that we hired right near the beginning. This guy Jim McGeever who became our CFO and ultimately our COO and president. And he was an incredible collaborator too. So it really was towards the last days before we became part of Oracle, it was really a three-person team running the company on a day-to-day basis. We called ourselves the circular firing squad. (laughs) Love that. And so you have the CEO, Zach, your head's down on product and product development. Right. Yeah, so that's what I'm really focused on. And we're making so much progress. I mean, some of the most important advances we made were during this time when the business was You were the chief technology officer. We made some of the key great decisions during that pre-IPO and post-IPO time that led to even more enormous success, as it were. We added something called One World, which allowed companies to sell and operate in multiple countries, which is a thing that companies are doing earlier and earlier in their life cycle. And we also added deeply to the platform of the product, which allows you as a partner or a customer themselves to customize NetSuite for your type of business. This was really what I was most excited about technologically from the beginning. All the stuff I worked on at Oracle was helping you build applications on top of Oracle. I didn't know anything about accounting. When Larry said we were starting with accounting, I had to go out and buy an accounting textbook. Fortunately, I soon hired someone that knew a lot more about accounting than I do. What I did know was how to make 
a platform that you can build great applications on. So we sort of built that in a NetSuite. In fact, one of our ideas post-embed was something called EasyDB, which would make it super easy to build business applications yourself, no-code applications, you know, on the internet and have them be internet-based applications. Well, that's what, so we ended up building that into NetSuite. There's a super easy way to build applications to extend NetSuite on top of the NetSuite data. And so those advances were all happening during this time. And that's what I was really focused on. And again, the, the things we were doing, to my mind, were really revolutionary, not just the cloud, but how we were making it so easy for people to consume these applications, extend these applications, and then you know really give them the power of a very sophisticated system in the hands of these relatively small companies that didn't have a lot of resources. Our first major ad like we did a billboard like everybody did back in the dot-com era. We did a billboard on 101 and it had a baby in a fighter jet. So that was sort of our mentality that we were giving, you know, it may, that got a lot of hate mail from people that don't like the idea of fighter jets and babies in them, which I guess I understand in retrospect, but it did really encapsulate what we were trying to do, which was give this sort of awesome power in a way that it can be used by a small company effectively. That makes sense. So the product continued to develop. You continued to innovate, especially when you didn't have the distractions of the public markets, really. Then what, Larry calls you? Let's do this thing? Um, no, that's not really how it worked. I mean, it's been documented in the filings of how it all happened. But okay. You don't have to talk about anything. You don't feel yeah, comfortable yeah, about I mean, No, I'll just say this, that it was clear to Larry and has become clear to me in retrospect that we could do more and move faster in providing these kinds of great tools to fast growing smaller companies if we did it more in partnership with the rest of Oracle. Yeah. The road not traveled, you don't know what would have happened. And I, I firmly believe that we would have accomplished great things, but also I see the wisdom of combining forces and we've been able to do some incredible things as part of Oracle that we would not have been able to do as an independent company. Totally. You know what's interesting? I mapped the stock of Oracle from when you originally started until now. And I think, maybe I'm wrong, but I think it was... 15 cents when you were there <laughs> and it's now at 109. And you know, that was dollars. entirely me. That was you. Yeah. In yeah, fact, yeah. for the 20 years I wasn't at the company, I was really just sort of doing voodoo to help raise the stock That's price. That's right. So well, it's, it's, been, it's incredible. It's funny. I mean, if you ask Larry, he, he probably won't admit it, but you know, deep down he knows it was all me. No, the reality <laughs> is that it should have been a picture of you in the fighter jet on the billboard in the 101. <laughs> Financially, you could have just stayed at Oracle. And it might no, have that's missed. certainly true. The really interesting thing is that, of course, as I said, it was really Larry was the visionary behind the cloud, and he was taking sort of a dual approach. Build for the cloud within Oracle and build for the cloud with an independent company that could sort of be you know, a model of how things will work if you start with the notion that you're going to be a service. You're not going to be software that you put on it disk, no one probably knows what that means at this point, but, and toss it over the wall and dare people to install it and run it on their own computers. Instead, you're going to be a service that they rely on every day, like water from a tap. And that's how our mentality, I mean, early in the, in NetSuite's history, a customer posted to our user group on Christmas Eve that their website wasn't working because we offered e-commerce capabilities. And I happened to be on the user group and people, I think, when they hear the story, assume that because I'm Jewish, that that's why I was on the user group <laughs> on Christmas Eve. But no, it's because that's what it's like to run a startup. And I was able to fix this problem really quickly. And, you know, he was very thankful. And what it did show me was really, really clearly that we are a service with a product in it, but that ultimately, truly, we're a service. And we need to be providing service to our customers 24-7, including on Christmas Eve. So that mentality being built in, you know, from the early days of the company, I think was a great experiment that proved successful. And then there was a time where I th you'd say that maybe the host would not reject the organ and we could come into an Oracle that had also been doing more and more with cloud, but from a different kind of approach of kind of trying to transition to it rather than just starting with it. And that, you know, together that was sort of the right time that our experiment could then sort of become part of the overall kind of Oracle existence. Totally. 
serendipitous. Yeah, well, it worked. It, it worked out incredibly well. You've said that starting a company, you actually have to apply more force to get something moving than to keep it moving. I thought that was a cool quote. I don't even know if you remember when right. or where you I said mean, it. But. Isaac Newton really was the originator of that idea, but um, can you expand on that a little bit? Meaning, going back to our AI conversation around this idea that look, Juven, I don't know if I would engage with the technology in the same way that I did when I saw the internet. Is the idea of applying force from the beginning to start something new just a different, more daunting? type of challenge than it would be using AI with the existing NetSuite mission in a way that continues to progress the mission forward here. Does that framing make sense? You mean now? is it, Do you have to apply more force now than you did back then? Meaning, <laughs> does the idea of having to reapply force from a beginning rather than continuing no, what no, your mission is, I don't know, does that feel daunting? What I'd say is that I always believed that when you start something, you're half done in some sense that I definitely have a bias towards action. And maybe that has worked to my detriment in some cases where maybe I've moved too quickly, but getting that flywheel going, once you start to see something on the screen and you start to get it in the user's hands and you start getting feedback from the users, the sooner you can do that, the sooner you can really be moving in, in the right direction. But it, it's really hard work, those early early days to get something to a point where it's live. And then once that happens, then you're getting the great customer feedback and then you got the momentum in how you develop your technology and you have a system in place. You have great people that are super motivated. You know, part of it is also the people. I mean, you're getting those early people into your organization. I was lucky that I had sort of a jump start having brought over people from my previous company, but that's sort of a big, big part of the flywheel and one that can very much go awry, especially in those early days when there's not too many people in the company. You talked about fights between co-founders and that sort of thing. I mean, getting everybody aligned under this pressure cooker environment is hard. And But if you can do it, then you sort of have the wind in your sails. Maybe you just stumbled into a great fit of personalities amongst co-founders, but was there anything that you did in hindsight intentionally amongst yourselves that you think did a good job of keeping the unit somewhat cohesive? I got some great advice from Larry early on. He's like, we only hire people that it's good to go to lunch with. <laughs> because, you know, especially in those early days, you're together all the time. So I always feel, and I still continue to feel this very day at NetSuite, we have a fantastic culture of people that are enjoyable to work with, they're fun, and yet they're also serious about what they're doing. And that combination of that sort of low-key intensity, I think over the course of my career is something that I've sort of developed a bit more of an ability to identify who is going to subscribe to that notion of how to be in the workplace and, and who wouldn't, and who isn't. And, and it's pretty easy to ruin that culture with a couple of people. So I think just being really, really sticking to your guns about what, how you need people to be and how you want them to act on a day-to-day -day basis is, is really critical. Same question on the personal side. With kids and a wife, one of the Netflix founders is famous for a Wednesday night is date night. No matter what, do not touch his calendar from call it five to eight dinner with his wife. I'm fascinated by these dichotomies. Again, maybe not, but did you do anything to create space there? Did you do anything to make those two things work more symbiotically in any intentional way? Well, I think my, my wife would probably hearken to the story of how she was going to go for a scheduled C-section and she was in the car and I was like, wait, I just have to check in this one last thing. So I didn't leave a ton of space, but once I got to the hospital, I didn't bring my laptop. So I think I have that going for me. No, you know, you really just have to get, you have to put everything else a very, very distant third to that time with your family and the time that you're thinking about or executing your vision at your company. And yeah. then if you do that, there are enough hours in the day to give your kids and your family that attention. And, but it's tough, you know, it, it's... Again, you feel responsible for the success, not just for you, but for the people that you've brought into the venture. And you kind of feel like, I should always be thinking about this. I should always be thinking about new ideas. And yet your little one-year-old could care less about that stuff. Totally. Is there a do-over on a decision 
that you made over this ride that you wish you had? And I know the easy and obvious answer is I've, I have no regrets. I'm not sure anybody actually believes that. Like, is there one thing Again, this could be very tactical or it could be more strategic. Yeah, no, I mean, there are definitely many tactical things that I can look back on. As I said, I think it's really important to understand your mistakes and the times that we didn't spend enough time on design, for example, or that we made our product too complicated in reaching for certain features that you know key customers want, but not spending the time to really do them right. There's plenty of things we can think of that we are doing much, much better as we sort of reinvent ourselves these days. But it's hard when you look back at the success we've had to really point at anything that you wouldn't have done because it's the journey is, all of it is part of it. We didn't start really focusing on our existing customers until the pressure cooker time of the financial crisis. Before that, the orders were coming in and our big focus was more, more, more customers. And yeah, we'd sell some stuff to our existing customers. We, you know, if they had problems, we'd fix them. But- I think a lot of companies don't realize not only how important their existing customers are to your growth, because of course they're the ones, and every now everybody does the ultimate question, you know, how likely you're to recommend. So that, I think now people understand that, but also that there's tons of opportunity with them because they probably don't use your product nearly as effectively as you would. I mean, I think in your sort of, Ivory Tower, you're like, well, I'm sure everybody's using it perfectly as we intended it. No, that turns out not to be the case. And when you, I go out and visit customers, they say, you know, we know we could get so much more out of NetSuite. We're not quite sure how. Well, during the financial crisis, our customers were also in crisis. And, you know, there was a risk that they were going to churn. And also, you know, NetSuite is all about helping your business and helping your business at all times. So we realized that really what we needed to do was put a much, much bigger focus on our existing customers, make sure they were being successful with our product, do what we could to help them use NetSuite to help them get through the difficult times. And the structures we put in place to allow us to systematically help our customers improve their use of NetSuite, really monitor them, has paid off huge both in our customer success and financially because we've been able to grow much faster our existing customer base. And I think a lot of companies, that was a case where a crisis, you know, made us have that revelation. Of course, I wish we had started that sooner because I'm sure we missed out on a lot of opportunity and we didn't help customers that probably could have used it as much as we could have. But on the other hand, you look back and you say, wow, how great it is that we did that. And we maybe were lucky that a financial crisis came along that was just part of the evolution of the company, that kind of learning learning those things. If you weren't working, what, what would you be doing? I just feel like you really love this. Like yeah, I really- I, this, No, it's my it's definitely my vocation and my avocation. I mean, I'd be writing software. There's no doubt about it. Really? That's what I'd be doing for fun. Yeah, even if I made no money out of it. I mean, I always liked it when I was, you know, when I first time I saw a computer, I started to try to figure out exactly how it worked. The Apple II- was my, the first computer I owned and I immediately got the reference manual that told you how to get into the ROMs and see how everything was working. I love that stuff. So that to that degree, building software, understanding software, creating something out of nothing, that's one of the things that I love. I mean, maybe it's because I, not that I was never that great at wood shop, so I knew that that was not going to be the way that I was going to be able to create something out of nothing. And I have enormous respect for people that can create physical things with their hands or that can do art and create art is an amazing way that you create something out of nothing. For me, that's been software. That creative act is something that I, that I just love and would always be doing no matter what. Well, for the sake of the technology industry, we all hope that you continue to keep on keeping on. It's absolutely incredible what you've done, what you continue to do, and hopefully what you'll be doing for a really long time. I end all these things the same way. The first, are you hiring? Any, we're, all, we're always hiring, always looking for great any people. Any key roles? Well, it might not surprise you that we would like to enlarge our AI team. <laughs> so, But, you know, nobody else wants to do that. So fortunately, it's a buyer's market out there. <laughs> <laughs> Last one, when you hear the word grit, who or what comes to mind? Gosh, that's a great question. I mean, there are so many people in my life. I mean, certainly I think mostly of the people in my life that have experienced a lot of difficulty. I, you know, certainly harken back to my dad who grew up in the depression at 18 years old. He was thrown on a ship to go to Asia 
to fight in a war that was being fought by 18-year-olds and he was preparing for the invasion of Japan and he has some great stories about, I mean, the, the crossing was horrific. You know, the stuff that he dealt with in the war and then coming back and, you know, having nothing. I mean, his family had no money and just working so hard over so many years to build a great life for his family. That's the example that's probably closest to home. And, you know, same with my mom. Same thing with what I feel about Cindy. I mean, my, my dad had an amazing partner, incredibly supportive. They persevered. They grew up in a very different time and were able to deliver on what they truly wanted to, which was to have their children have the kinds of opportunities and see the kind of success that maybe they, they weren't able to. It's amazing. Evan, thank you. Thanks for having me. It was great. That's it. Thanks for tuning in. Feel free to come back every Monday morning to listen to a new guest or go back into the archives when we've done more than 100 episodes. This podcast is a Kleiner Perkins production and the episode was edited by Eric Johnson from Lightning Pod. Thank you all.